Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, I'll be speaking with Dacher Keltner, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the faculty director of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. The author of the new book, Awe, The Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life, Dacher is a renowned expert in the science of human emotion and studies issues including power, status, inequality, and social class. This book really emphasizes how we could all use more awe in our lives and should seek it out. It's sure to become the definitive book on the subject, and I highly recommend it. Before we jump into the episode, I'd first like to thank our episode sponsor, Mud Water, a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. With only about a seventh of the amount of caffeine as a 12-ounce cup of drip coffee, Mudwater provides energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. For sustained energy, Mudwater leans on mushrooms in its blend of matcha and in its blend of chai. Each ingredient has been added for a purpose. The lion's mane mushrooms for alertness. Cordyceps to help support physical performance. Chaga and reishi to support the immune system turmeric for soreness, and cinnamon for antioxidants. I recently added mud water as part of my routine, and wow, there's a simple mud shake recipe that's now practically become a daily ritual for me. It involves a tablespoon of mud water, banana, tablespoon of almond butter, 12 ounces of milk. In my case, I use oat milk and ice in a blender. That's it. For 15% off your next order and to support the show, go to mudwater.com backslash slowdown. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com backslash slowdown and use the code slowdown. And now here's my conversation with Dacher Keltner. Hi, Dacher. Welcome to At A Distance. Hey, Spencer. How you doing? So to start, I was hoping you might tell me a bit about your work at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and how that ultimately led you to this vast subject of your new book, Awe. Yeah, you know, um, the Greater Good Science Center was at UC Berkeley was started 20 years ago. And the idea was there was all this new science of mindfulness and gratitude and compassion and cooperation. I didn't want it to be buried in academic journals. I wanted it to kind of get out into the world to teachers and healthcare providers. And so at the center, we uh, first thing we did is we did a magazine, which actually was a print magazine that turned into our website, now read by a million people. We did an online class. We've started a podcast, The Science of Happiness. And now we're really moving into education pretty assertively with greater good in education. Same idea, like you know, there's this incredible science of awe or compassion or gratitude or beauty, stress, mindfulness, and the like. And let's get it in the hands of people who make a difference and encourage action through knowledge. And you've been teaching happiness for, as you mentioned, 20 years now. <laughs> what are some of the key moments, findings, experiences during this time that brought you to this awe answer in terms of you know, living a good, happy life? Well, you know, for 20 years, I've taught happiness on how do you handle stress? How do you connect to people and get along, you know, with family members? How do you find gratitude or joy? And, you know, Spencer, I really felt like kind of the 
the imagination and, and meaning and purpose was missing in the field. And in fact, only recently in 2016 did Crystal Park publish, like, same idea. Meaning is missing. What makes us buzz with purpose or excitement? And that's what awe is about. You know, awe is, it points us to what is meaningful. It, it tells us what transcends ourselves in our own narrow versions of happiness. And so it just felt like the time was right within the happiness literature to really start to prioritize awe and, and states like beauty that are closely related to it. And in the book, you define awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. I loved reading that because I was like, how did you come to this definition? I mean, awe seems like this almost indefinable (laughs) thing, but you managed to capture it. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of funny. You know, it's like everybody says that awe is indefinable. You can't capture it with language. It's ineffable, you know, and yet everybody tries to define it in their old traditions and philosophy and religion and spirituality and, you know, like the numinous and the ecstatic. And and so I came to that definition through a couple of pathways. One was the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke from the 18th century, who's like, awe or the sublime is about power or vastness and mystery or obscurity, what he called obscurity. We can't make sense of it immediately. And that felt right to me, you know, that the experiences of awe I've had really had that sort of overwhelming quality to them that I couldn't make sense of. So in the book, I move towards a more colloquial definition of the best way to think about awe is that it's really about the vast mysteries of life. And you break the book into what you call the eight wonders of life. How did you go about creating this structure and identifying these particular wonders? Yeah, this has been really funny because, you know, awe is such a rich topic, you know, historically. It's about religion and music and nature and psychedelics and political protest and charismatic leaders and all this stuff. What we decided to do in my lab is survey, actually more than survey, we gathered stories of awe from 26 countries. What made you feel awe? When did you last encounter what was vast and mysterious? And this is countries ranging from China to Mexico to India to Brazil to US to Japan, Indonesia and the like. And what we uncovered once we translated those stories after a couple of years is in the book, I call the eight wonders of life kind of aggravates people like, oh, come on, eight, you know, but indeed you covered about 95% of the stories, which is people's moral beauty, kindness and courage, nature, collective movement. You're cheering at a, a rally or a football game or doing rituals in a service or dancing. Then you get to music, visual design, and religion or spirituality. And then two kind of odd ones, which were big ideas. You know, you really might believe like you may learn about free markets and just be blown away at the idea of free markets or evolution. Uh, And then life and death, you know, that there's a cycle of life to everything. It's a fundamental truth about reality. And lo and behold, we find it mysterious when it begins and mysterious when it ends. I love on the collective one, how you describe it as collective effervescence. <laughs> yeah, that's Emil Durkheim. You know, he's this great sociologist and he's, he kind of observed these small scale society people. And when they would 
sort of practice their spirituality. They dance and move together and start vocalizing together. And that really is the heart of this transcendent ecstatic experience of like dancing with people, cheering with people, singing with people, choirs, just brings about this sort of bubbling, electric, tingly feeling together. That's all. You write today that we're in the midst of an age of emotion in science. And I was wondering, how do you define this age of emotion? What is the sort of work being done within this? It's transcendent. You know, I mean, the, you know, until about 1980, psychological science, neuroscience had really focused on cognition, thought as being the driver of behavior. And we just didn't have a lot to say about emotion. You know, these brief feeling states that have a subjective quality, that have a bodily response that lead you to do things like anger and fear and, and disgust and awe and compassion and amusement. And emotions are just fundamental to how we think, how we connect to people, what makes us happy and healthy. And I think that, you know, the age of emotion is really defined by some central ideas that emotions have a deep rationality to them. You might think that anger seems irrational, but in point of fact, it is, it just embodies your sense of justice. You know, it's fair. Emotions have a, a deep structures activated in the brain, right? So we can start to understand the brain uh, through emotion. And emotions are really about our social life that, you know, just to pick one example, like some young women very sadly feel a lot of shame about their bodies and and about their lives. That's an emotional response that is about feeling subjugated and judged and critiqued. So emotions have this rich sort of informative value to what our social lives are like as well. So it's a, such a dramatic shift, even in my 30 years in the field where Now we have emotional intelligence, we have EQ, we hire judges based on their emotional abilities. It's all over the workplace. So it's pretty profound cultural change. I found it really interesting to learn that lab studies have shown that awe leads to more rigorous thought. That surprised me too. I was wondering, why is this exactly? Like, how would you explain that? Rigor out of awe. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for picking that up. You know, a lot of people feel like, once you feel awe, you're kind of stupefied, you're glassy-eyed, you're like, oh. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's in the first moments, the first seconds of awe, right? You see a flashing light in the sky and you don't know what it is. Like, what is that, right? But what we got to remember is that emotions unfold in processes and awe unfolds into a state of wonder, which is about curiosity and seeking explanation. And in that state that awe produces, people are more rigorous in how they think about things. They evaluate evidence more carefully. They are better scientists. They do better in school. They are more sophisticated in their political reasoning. Those are all empirical findings. Brief experiences of awe sharpen your reasoning and your intellect. And I think that fits you know, this point earlier, Spencer, of like emotions have a rationality to them. They feel wild and disruptive, but they actually sort out a lot of information and help us find truths that are important to us. And I have to bring technology into this question. I mean, particularly screens. You describe how so many of us are operating with an overactive default self 
augmented by self-obsessed digital technologies. The result, of course, is anxiety, depression, self-criticism. Is experiencing awe a way out of this loop? How do you kind of see awe as a potential solution to what ails us? Yeah. It's astonishing. We're just starting to make sense of this, Spencer, almost at the sociological level, like what's happening in our culture today? I recently um, visited the Louvre, the great museum, where I go whenever I'm in Europe, incredible place. And I went to go see the Mona Lisa. And now when people see the Mona Lisa, they don't really look at the Mona Lisa. They take photos of themselves in front of the Mona Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) It's absurd. You know, they're going into this great painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Instead of looking at the painting and the mystery of the smile, they're taking a picture of themselves. And that's kind of emblematic of what sociologists are worried about, which is in a lot of cultures, people are just too focused on the self. You know, they they take pictures of themselves. They look at their Instagram likes. They compare their Instagram likes to other likes. They are self-critical. They are worried about their bodies. They focus too much and ruminate too much at night about their selves. And this is a historical aberration. You know, the mind needs to be aware of the self and track it to succeed in the world. But we need to be aware of the context. We need to be aware of other people. We need to be aware of the environment. And all of this self-focus takes us away from that and has led to rates of anxiety and depression that are really high. And, you know, when I started to think, like, learn about people's experiences of awe, they would commonly say, like, God, I forgot about myself. I disappeared. I dissolved. I couldn't hear that self-critical voice. And so we've got a lot of data that speak to that. And that's part of why awe is so good for you, is it just shuts down what Aldous Huxley called this nagging neurotic voice that's always like, oh, Dacker, you know, you're not working hard enough. You're not successful enough. Your bank account isn't good enough. You, oh, you're looking, you look, you're overweight, you know, whatever it is. Awe quiets all of that chatter down, says, hey, look and see what's big out there that's worthy of your attention. Yeah. I mean, I would say it takes you away from the self and the cell phone. (laughs) Ah, and we should just call it the self phone. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me think of, uh, it was a sort of meme I recently saw where it showed Michael Jordan shooting a three and LeBron James shooting a three. And it was to sort of show the contrast between the audiences and how in the Michael Jordan era, the audience was all on their feet, screaming, clapping. And in the LeBron era, everyone's still seated and staring at their phones, taking pictures. Ah, there are really deep issues at play here, you know. One of the interesting things in studying awe is one of the things that awe often brings about, like with music or watching dance or a political rally or a sporting event, like you talk about, Spencer, is we all share our attention of that event. And that's really important. Michael Tomasello, this really important developmental psychologist, has said that that ability to share attention, you and I are aware of the same things, is a miracle. It's very important to human beings and consciousness. And the cell phone disrupts it, right? We all go to an event, we put up our phones to record it, and we're not understanding that we're all sharing in the experience of that moment. And so it's serious. And awe brings us into focus. Like, what is disrupting the fundamental structures of awe 
uh, that we should worry about. Could you talk a bit about another tech, T-E-K, traditional ecological knowledge, and how that comes into this? Yeah. Or, you know, what Dr. Yuri Salidwin calls ecological belonging. The And a lot of people have written about this, which is that we used to fear nature. Well, we in many indigenous societies, we felt like we were part of ecosystems. Then we began as the Western Industrial Revolution kicked into gear to fear nature, and people didn't like to go outside, and they didn't hike in mountains. And then we, you know, with the rise of Western European technologies, came to believe that we own nature, and we commodify it, and we exploit it, and treat it as resources. And that has led to where we are today, you know, of overconsumption and burning fossil fuels, et cetera. And awe shifts our awareness of nature to more like Dr. Sleedwin's ecological belonging and our traditional ecological knowledge of like, there are these ecosystems out there. They are complex processes of different species interacting with each other. I'm one of many species in this system. And we're all competing and collaborating towards some sort of homeostasis. And that is such a radically different view of nature, where we revere resources. We see ourselves as potentially collaborators with other species. And awe produces that awareness of nature, that kind of ecological belonging. And, and there are, are studies showing you know, from China and elsewhere that just a little feeling of awe makes you adopt this different view of nature, which is good for the health of ecosystems. Right. Systems thinking, um, which became such a, a focus of so many people during COVID too. I think that, you know, really? this, this, well, this slowdown, at least, I mean, maybe that's my hope. Yeah. <laughs> this slowdown allowed people to think a lot more about systems thinking. It's been a focus of a lot of the episodes on this podcast, including a conversation we had with Dr. Suzanne Samard, who oh, you know, talks all about the, the roots of trees and the mother tree. Yeah. And, you know, it, thanks for bringing it up. And you're the, actually the first interview I've gotten to talk about this. But that's what awe does. Systems thinking is a major achievement in cognition. And some people believe it's one of the defining human strengths. It's like there are systems out there, cultural systems, spiritual systems, ecosystems, social systems, and I'm part of them. And how do I figure it out? And awe opens your eyes to that. You know, one of my favorite studies is you get people to feel awe, say, about in viewing nature imagery. And they're like, wow, that's so amazing that, you know, those big waves and flocks of birds and patterns of light in trees and ecosystem or, you know, fungi. And they are more aware of how they're part of a social system. They're like, oh, wait, I'm not a solitary individual. I'm part of this network that's connected in different ways. And we need that. You know, kids need that. So glad you brought it up. Answer. Conversations, of course, can get pretty woo-woo when you talk about awe. Yeah. So <laughs> I, found, I found it refreshing that you describe everyday awe as a basic human need, which really just brings it down to earth. And for me, reading that, that was such a profound perspective shift that awe is something we shouldn't wait for, but in fact should seek out as if it's part of our diet. That comes out of the science, the deep structures to the science in the book, which is you start to realize there's a really important argument made recently to great effect in 
psychological science that we have a need to belong, that it's good for our health, it shows up early in kids, it's part of our evolutionary history. And I think the data are now in place to make the same case for awe. And in fact, you know, Descartes felt that it was a basic mental state, awe. Einstein said, if you're not feeling awe and mystery, you're not alive. It's about a human being being alive. And as I thought about this broader argument of what constitutes a need, awe fits the criteria. You know, kids show awe right away, just like they acquire language and learn to love certain foods and learn to connect to caregivers. Kids are just wild with awe and it's part of their intellectual development. It's good for your body. You know, it's really good to your immune system to get out into the woods or kind of listen to music and feel awe and suddenly your immune system looks better. And then it's good for your adjustment, you're fitting into society. A little bit of awe, you collaborate more, you build stronger ties, much like with language you do, right? Or music. And so those kinds of data tell us, you know, and I love your juxtaposition, Spencer, like, Oh, it's just woo-woo, it's just new agey, it's just sitting in hot tubs and, you know, <laughs> doing headstands or whatever. But in fact, these findings tell us, like, this is as vital for children as it's not, you obviously got to have food and water but and sleep, but this is right up there in terms of our emotional needs to really find awe. You write about children that, you know, one of the most alarming trends in the lives of children today is this disappearance of awe and right that we are not giving them enough opportunities to discover and experience the wonders of life. You reference this great 1956 essay by the writer and conservationist Rachel Carson called Help Your Child to Wonder, which is basically a presentation of an awe-based approach to raising a kid. Totally. Totally. What are some of the solutions as you see it for creating a greater sense of awe in children? Is it just like put the iPads away? Yeah. I mean, what's happening here? Oh man, you know, it was so astonishing to raise two daughters in this era. You know, I was raised in the late sixties, kind of counterculture parents, and you know, I didn't learn too much in high school to be honest. <laughs> but caught up and but they, what they did teach me is like how to find awe. And when I raised my daughters, it was almost the antithesis of what Rachel Carson talks about. Like she talks about getting outside. Fundamental. She takes her nephew out into this rainy storm, you know, and parents today, you know, kids are spending more time inside on iPads, looking at images of nature. You know, if you read the essay, it's really just about distrusting language and concepts. And when I was a parent, I remember like a lot of parents today, like I kind of heard, oh, it's really important to teach your kid words and teach, always label stuff. And I was labeling the hell out of everything. Kids need to learn about phenomena on their own, you know, independent of a parent's language. In the essay, she just kind of wanders, you know, in a free form way with her nephew. And a lot of our education of kids doesn't allow for wandering. It's all focused on tests and scores. You know, she really talks about mystery being the engine of what we need to pursue in knowledge. And that's not as much a part of curriculum. So it's such an important essay. And thank you for flagging it. Neuroesthetics was this other subject I, I wanted to touch on here. 
particularly beauty and art and visual design. And I was thinking about the world right now at the city planning level. There are all these homogenous non-spaces being foisted upon us. Oh my God. So I think it's important to emphasize the creation of beautiful, thoughtfully constructed buildings, public spaces that encourage greater use, encourage deeper engagement, and actually promote collective health and well-being. And I think what your book shows is that this isn't just um, you know, some nice things to think about and consider. This is science. <laughs> there is there is fact to show that like when you're in a beautiful space, you're almost becoming a better, fuller person. Man, you're you're capturing exactly why I wrote this book, Spencer. So thank you for your careful reading. You know, how do we parent out of this emotion, honor the child's need for awe? The other one is awe design, awe-based design. You know, it's a deep human tendency in our greatest achievements, you know, the, the Mayan pyramids and the cathedrals of Europe and the glass windows and Sagrada Familia and the, the Japanese gardens to design for awe, you know, and there are principles there. You think about, we know that urban landscapes have effects upon people's health and well-being. And I review that evidence in this book. And so that just urges us to, to really think about what you're proposing, which is that there are really clear principles of awe-based design about degrees of vastness and hints at mystery and, you know, shifts in attention from the small to the vast and mystery built into it, et cetera, that an architect or an urban planner would know better than me. And there are data that show that places with those design principles, the citizens are happier and there's less crime. So it's important. But what's been exciting is people are starting to think about this. You know, I was talking to an architecture firm in Sweden and they're like, we are starting to design buildings for awe. I was just had somebody reach out who was interested in palliative care facilities and designing for awe and beauty. We know how to do this and somehow we've lost sight of this. And so I hope our conversation in the book inspires people in that direction. So just to finish, um, out of all the work you've done <laughs> on this subject and, and in all your life experience, I mean, you have so many incredible anecdotes and stories and yeah, thank you. You know, also write very powerfully about losing your brother. What, if anything, has left you the most awestruck? Like, like when you really look across the board here, when have you felt your greatest sense of awe? Yeah, you know, the, my most reliable source of awe is nature. But the one that really, and I think the greatest mystery is music. Like, how in the world does music make us cry and sob and hug strangers and, <laughs> you know, join political causes and find our identity? I mean, that's amazing. And we don't really have answers to that. But, you know, the one that really I still ponder to this day, and, and it changed my life, is moral beauty, that everyday moral beauty of people being kind and sharing and courageous, overcoming extraordinary obstacles, and how that moves us around the world. It was our deepest universal to where we find awe is kindness, courage, and overcoming, moral beauty. And you've nicely called out technology, right? Facebook or Meta prioritizing enraging content, Twitter doing the same, 
Instagram being a kind of a machine of envy. And then you think about awe for moral beauty, you realize we need to open our eyes to that. It's an urgent time to remember people are extraordinarily kind. They can overcome most anything. There's a lot of courage out there. And I'm just struck how powerful it is for people to have those experiences and how we've lost sight of it. In our world, there's such cynicism. We feel like we're devolving into this mob mentality, but there's tons of moral beauty to to move us forward in history. I'll leave it there. Dacker, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Spencer. And thanks for the really original and careful reading of the book. Thanks to our episode sponsor, Mud Water, a coffee alternative with four adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. For 15% off and to support the show, go to mudwater.com backslash slowdown. That's M-U-D-W-T-R.com backslash slowdown and use the code slowdown. And thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv. This episode was produced by Ramon Broza, Emily Jang, and Johnny Simon.